You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. Today we'll hear from members of various community networks around the world. Community networks generally offer local communities the opportunity to own and control their digital communication infrastructure. First, we'll hear from members of NYC Mesh, a community network founded in New York City. (laughs) NYC Mesh is a community-owned internet that replaces your current internet service provider. It is affordable, it's fast, and it's ours. Affordable means pay what you want, Fast means you get 50 to 250 megabytes per second. And hours means that it's open and neutral. There's no spying. It's run by volunteers. You can see who's operating the network and you can volunteer or wear more by going to our meetups. You just heard Jonathan DeHaan, a member of NYC Mesh. In March, we spoke with Jonathan and Maif Ma about the physical structure of the network and how it compares to a traditional internet service provider. The internet itself is a mesh network in a way, right? So there are these like internet exchanges. Picture that as giant routers. They're spread all around the world. And then they kind of talk to each other. They are like peers with each other. Peering is actually a a terminology they use. If I'm Amazon and I say, hey, Google, I want to peer with you. And then so that anybody from my network want to go to Google, you know, we can route you through. They are physical locations. And like if you're interested in what makes up the physical internet and how to look for it, Ingrid Barrington has a really good book, a field guide to networks. So what's the difference between receiving internet access through NYC Mesh versus receiving internet access through somewhere like Verizon? The two biggest ones, I think, are that it's free, quote unquote. Free as in freedom? Well, it's free as in freedom for sure, but if you do an install, most of the time you're paying for the physical antenna hardware to get the connection. And if you're not installing it yourself, um, you pay for someone's time to you know, come to your house and, and like figure out where to put it and do hardware stuff. And then once you do that, we suggest that you pay if you can, but, but if you can't, that's fine too. Another uh, difference between you know, NYC and uh, say Verizon is that, and then we actually own the physical part of NYC Mesh. You can actually run some software, you can see exactly where your packet has gone through. If I say I want to go see what's the route is like from my server to Google, I can see I am bouncing up to a place called South Surplus, which is like an artist collective down the road. And from from South Surplus, we bounced at this NYCHA tower, which is in the border between Bushwick and Bestai. And from there, we bounced it to, to somebody else's uh, VPN that connects back to our server in downtown Manhattan. You know exactly where you go. Unlike uh, Verizon, which is like a black box that they, yeah. they manage for you. Now it's like, 
oh, we have a problem. What's going on? Like, this whole neighborhood is down. What's going on? And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, somebody like... Turned on the microwave and, you know, <laughs> the toaster oven at the same time and they need to flip the switch yeah. to give us back internet. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I guess the third aspect is like it's very community-oriented. So you feel the effect of somebody right next door. Exactly. Yeah. A question I have is what an install looks like, what materials are needed in order to do an install. The, the key is you have an antenna, you have a way to um, take a ethernet cable down to some equipment in your house or apartment or, or building and some way to mount it. And if you have those three things, you can be on the mesh. We also asked Jonathan and Mife about the social structures of NYC Mesh. So organizational structure is, is pretty lightweight. It is pretty implicit still, which I've got personal feelings about, like thinking that we should start to be a little bit more explicit, not in defining the structure of what NYC Mesh should be, but in describing the existing state of things and what to expect. Um, I think it's pretty important to make sure people feel welcome when they first come to a meeting. So there are two kinds of meetings. They're both open to the public. Uh, anyone can make an NYC Mesh meeting. So we, we use meetup.com to organize it, and you can propose a meetup in your neighborhood. And then there, there are kind of more formal planning meetings. So at the last planning meeting that I went to, I ended up volunteering for helping do a uh, Supernode install, which is like one of those exchange points, mm -hmm. and we're doing one in um, Industry City. That led to a month later being on the roof in the rain, drilling holes through mortar, and like throwing cables down like an elevator shaft to help other people catch it. And so uh, it's really up to you how much involvement you want to be. Yeah, things are changing pretty rapidly, I would say, like in terms of organizational structure, just because it's like a scaling problem. At the beginning, it's like a bunch of people are like, oh, yeah, we like each other, and then we're doing cool technology together. It sounds fun, but then at some point, there's liability issues. You're involving people who are not just quote-unquote tech bros, but like mom and pop is like your regular, your ordinary New Yorkers are coming in because they're interested either from the concept or they, they want to be paying less money for internet. It definitely started as a tech bro thing, and there are people actively working on making it not that, but I think most of the people who really care about it and who are volunteering and doing the installs, they're doing it really because they want to see um, access for people who don't care about the tech and just have other more important things to be doing. <laughs> You mentioned having NYC Mesh right now in one NYCHA building. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that looks like? And then also if you guys have any other projects that are similar to that in scope of trying to reach people who maybe would not come to a DBA meeting? Oh, yeah, so I can talk about the NYCHA tower. Um, it's called um, Saratoga Village. It's a 16-story high building, and uh, we were part of a partnership with this other organization called Block Power. Block Power goes in there collecting data for energy usage, and then use that data to bargain with the like energy providers for like a cheaper rate, I think. But they need their data to be transmitted somehow. 
we were saying, oh, hey, we could partner with you guys to do that. A lot of all these rubber Moses towers, they're super tall, which is advantage because we need line of sight in order to, to be able to connect. There's, I think so far, there's, I would say 60, around 60 stations are connecting to that one tower right now. So it provides like a huge area. We actually did uh, wire their internal like corridors with Wi-Fi. And uh, we have a few antenna points to the park. And people are using it? Like they know about it? At the beginning, they don't. And then we started to talk to them. Say, hey, um, you know, there's actually free Wi-Fi here. Here's the OIC Mesh card. You can learn about it. And then the Wi-Fi is just called OIC Mesh uh, Community Wi-Fi. Go on there, no password, just use it as much as you want. So think about somebody who's like paying like $60 for their apartment. I can't think about them paying another $100 for, for their yeah. internet bills. Yeah, so, so for other kinds of partnerships to bring access to more people, I think one thing that I've been seeing, not specific projects, but just um, starting to talk to the city more and share what we've been doing. We, you know, if, if you look at the map and how many nodes are active and how much interest there is, like it's gotten to a point, you know, some people they're spending their time just sharing what we're doing more widely, um, especially with the city and hoping that maybe as part of better city planning that uh, we're one of the options that are shared when, you know, block power is like, hey, we need, we need internet, who should we rent from? Just to be at that table, I think, is something that has a lot more momentum this year. So we have installed the Manhattan Borough President's office, and then she actually tweeted about NYC Match. She said, hey, everybody, check this out. Mife is referring to a tweet from February 11, 2019, by Gail Brewer, the Manhattan Borough President. She says, far too often we have seen large internet service providers collect consumer data only to sell it for a profit or lose it in a preventable security breach. NYC Mesh has created an open, resilient, and community-owned network for all New Yorkers. Next, we'll hear from Funkfeuer, a community network in Vienna, Austria, that was founded in 2004 about 10 years prior to NYC Mesh. So my name is Aaron Kaplan. I'm one of the three founders of uh, the Funkfeuer Network in Vienna. That is basically a community-run, bottom-up um, mesh network uh, built on top of the free airwaves of uh, the unlicensed spectrum of Wi-Fi. And we built a community network, built it ourselves on the roofs of Vienna. And it's basically covering the whole city in a way beyond. And that model was replicated in multiple other cities. Aaron tells us about how Funkfire functions as an internet service provider, or ISP, and what that means for a community-owned network. One particular attribute of the Vienna network um, is that we were lucky to get uh, public IP addresses um, pretty much from the start. Uh, that means uh, every device on the Funkfire network in Vienna is completely reachable and part of the global internet. 
Technically speaking, it behaves exactly like like an ISP, but it's community owned. So there there are interesting political implications with here because uh, with an ISP, basically you hand over the um, the power to properly route traffic to an ISP. So that changes when you do that on a community network, because they need to come together and agree on certain behaviors for routing traffic. That leads to a very interesting um, social contract that uh, appeared, I think, in London for the first time it was formulated. It's the so-called Pico-Peering Agreement. Basically, that breaks down to a couple of fundamental points, which are, I will route traffic over my roof node uh, for you, for free, without uh, inspecting it, without changing it, without uh, interfering. And you will do the same for me. The, the principle here is you can own the, it sounds very Marxist now, but you can own the means of productions in the digital age uh, by participating in this uh, uh, Funkfua network. Um, that is very central. However, I realized over the years that Funkfua meant many different things for many different people. For some, it meant just simply commodity internet for free, and that's cool, and that's okay. For others, it meant exactly that freedom aspect of tinkering, freedom of tinkering on a technical level. For another group of people, it meant political freedom. Um, and if you remember the um, internet shutdown with the Arab Spring in Egypt, that's when people woke up and said, actually, what we're doing with Funkwa is really, really important. It's so decentralized, it's hard to shut down, actually. I mean. You could, but it's, it's lots of effort. Funkfeuer, like NYC Mesh, can operate in a decentralized manner because it uses a special type of networking software that employs mesh routing. This means each device on the network can help route traffic for any other device on the network. The software was originally a diploma thesis, and he was so nice to make it open source. So we took it, uh, we improved it massively, and it sort of became the de facto standard, open source standard for mesh networks, actually. And maybe you can explain the idea of a mesh network and how does that look different than a traditional ISP? Basically, everything becomes a router, yeah? The classical ISPs have beefy, large core routers and uh, dedicated routing equipment, and here every device is a router. The definition is a bit... Arbitrary, actually. So the technical term that we usually use is mobile ad hoc network, because that def- defines the the properties better. Um, it can it encompasses mobile nodes as opposed to fixed, uh, let's say, fixed internet lines at uh, residential areas, and that that's the main difference to classical internet. And what were the reasons for designing the network as a mobile ad hoc network? And how did those decisions play into the sort of social mission? I think it's highly connected, uh, the social mission and the technical um, implementation. If you think how the original internet was designed, like this peer-to-peer, end-to-end principle, and every node has sort of the same rights in the network. And it just simply changed over time. So the global internet became more centralized. It is becoming more centralized as of today. This decentralized 
principle of the original internet was suddenly in 2004 reachable in the hands of everyday geeks who just had access to free airwaves, the unlicensed spectrum of Wi-Fi. Free airwaves, right? We're talking about something technical, but also something sort of political in some sense. Actually, I meant it's in a political sense. So as part of the process of getting permission to send and send on certain certain frequencies, you'd have to either be a country or large corporation, whatever. It's something out of the league and reach of community networks. But the Wi-Fi standard uh, was pretty unique and interesting. Wi-Fi is using the frequency band of 2.4 gigahertz. That's usually where the microwave oven is. But uh, basically, anyone was suddenly allowed to send on that frequency band. And that's what I mean by free airwaves. And you also mentioned started in 2004. It sort of sounded like you were saying maybe uh, that was connected to the availability of um, wireless routing and Wi-Fi in general. So there's an interesting coincidence um, which happened around the same time of the um, of our mesh network experiments. The company Linksys produced a rather affordable Wi-Fi router and turns out one of the Linux uh, core developers discovered that actually his software is running on that Linksys router. And since his software was licensed as general public license, he had the right to actually ask for the source code. And initially, Linksys was very hesitant, but eventually they actually released their software. So when you have this opportunity to create something like that, and when you suddenly see the whole thing coming together, like open source, open hardware, free airwaves, and you see the possibility to create something which would balance the um, more commercial internet in favor of a community-owned internet, it's just a very interesting experiment. You just have to do that experiment. <laughs> I think that was the principle. <laughs> that was a thought. Let's try it. Funkfire has been successful in putting internet ownership into the hands of community members. Though Aaron tells us about some of the lessons we can learn when networks start to scale. The centralization topics of uh, the internet were also visible in our network in a social sense on a very microcosmos scale, I guess. Uh, so people started to, for example, hoard nodes or build up more nodes and uh, they became more important parts of the network because they routed more traffic for other people. So, so there was this dynamic in there, just as in the global internet. The question of, you know, who controls which parts of the network is as valid as it is with the global internet. It's just much easier because it's so much smaller. And in case there are arguments, you can go over to that person and talk. <laughs> and what we need as a maybe human race uh, with our communication infrastructure is we are very well adapted to villages. We know how villages or small communities work. And we know how to, how to deal with conflict there. We don't know that on a global scale. 
So I think this experiment of having a small bottom-up community-owned run network is very valuable because it brings back similar questions that you have on a global internet to a local scale and people can work it out. Finally, we hear from Rhizomatica, an organization helping communities build and maintain self-governed communication infrastructure. While earlier segments focused on internet connectivity, we hear from founder Peter Bloom about community-owned cellular networks in Oaxaca, Mexico. My name is Peter Bloom, and I am in Oaxaca, Mexico right now. It's an organization, it's a group of people that work together on different aspects of community networks and different aspects of trying to transform telecommunications into something more participatory, something more open, um, something more fair. The central project is a technological project, but that's just a way of engaging on a social issue. The, The central issue being communication, the right for people to communicate and the need for people and social movements to have robust communications in order to function properly. Um, So the sort of social aspect is what leads and guides the, guides the organization in terms of how we do what we do. And then the sort of more technical aspect of it tries to actually implement those ideas in technical systems that, you know, tangible technical systems. So it's not just, um, you know, policy work in some conference room somewhere. And it's not just developing technology, you know, at some desk somewhere. It's that those are, are trying to feed into a more just society and a, and a more sort of community-driven self-determination context. We asked Peter about the origins of Rhizomatica in Oaxaca and the technical aspects of the cellular telephony network. I became aware of some different open source projects that were trying to make it easier and less expensive to start basically a quote unquote normal cell phone network. Use relatively inexpensive um, cellular base station. So cellular base station is the thing on the tower that makes a signal and Mm -hmm. sends that signal to people's phones. and then that's coupled with a suite of free and open source software that emulates a number of other components of the network. There's a hardware component and then there's a software component. And then on top of some other software that people wrote that, that emulate this network, um, we wrote our own software that actually makes it possible for the community to manage the network. Um, so it does billing, it allows um, someone locally to sign a new person up for service or cancel someone's service or add credit to their um, account and these kinds of things. Peter talks about the philosophies that guide Rhizomatica's work, including how technology is used in the network. On the technology part, um, we're very committed to free and open source software um, because we think it's the best way for people to be able to, to participate in this, in this kind of um, technology and ensure that they actually get the type of services and, and so on that they want. 
I guess the like specifically for, for cellular telephony and somewhat for internet, it's really easy to get like locked in technologically to what a, some kind of a, so to, to something that a provider or a vendor is giving you. Um, and we wanna to try to avoid that as much as possible. Many networks are designed with the city in mind and not with a rural area in mind or an indigenous community in mind. So um, there's, a, there's a pretty important technological aspect to the work about creating new technologies, developing out ones that already exist so that they can do what we need them to do in these areas. There's other sort of philosophies of the work that have to do with trying to be as decentralized as possible and distribute the network as much as possible. The network is actually a federated network. So each village has its own network, its own autonomous network that they're the owners and operators of. And then they federate together in order to build political power. Um, there are other kind of ideas behind what we do around making information more available. So this is not just the direct work that we do in communities, but kind of the larger scope of telecommunications policy. We think it's important that people know where the networks that surround them are, how they function. We asked Peter how networks are designed for the rural area in Oaxaca and the challenges faced by local and indigenous communities there. Technology that assumes that you're going to be able to connect to a reliable power source versus having to use alternative energy. Um, the costs of the, of, of the equipment, the complexity of deploying and maintaining the equipment. Most cellular networks have um, what we call network density, where basically there's um, the area that each part of the network or each component of the network covers is quite small because it assumes there's going to be lots and lots of people there. Whereas what we need to do is cover much larger areas where there are fewer people. Yeah, um, so there's the political and social, and there's also just the climate <laughs> context as well. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we want to make sure that we have all of our equipment running on renewable energy. Um, we want to make sure the technology is safe for people to communicate and allows them to organize themselves in a way that um, doesn't provide data or information to actors who might want to harm them. That could be governments, that could be other non-state actors like mining companies or um, you know, narco traffickers or whoever. So yeah, I mean, expanding on it a bit, there's, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of pressure on on these communities that are in rural areas and there, there are different pressures you know there's a pressure to leave the community and migrate and go to a city and make more money there's a pressure of climate change that the stuff that used to grow really easily doesn't grow so easily anymore or there are you know horrendous rains that wash out the roads and knock out the power um, there are mining companies that want to come in or logging companies that want to come in and take people's natural resources. Um, there's governments, you know, supporting those illegal loggers or mining companies or whoever to do that. So you have, um, like I said, state armed actors and non-state armed actors. So paramilitaries, all of these different things, you know, are, are experienced in different ways in a lot of these rural communities and indigenous communities um, in terms of climate change, 
making sure that people's networks keep running when there's like some kind of natural disaster so they can call for help and be in touch and coordinate relief support. We want to provide technology that supports communities, uh, that it supports the autonomy of those communities and their ability to, to resist and to, to stay resilient. I don't think we can address the root causes of those issues through technology, um, but we think that technology can at least help people um, to deal with some of these situations and make it less bad at least. And hopefully um, in some cases, you know, as a tool for organizing, as a tool for um, pursuing self-determination. Interference Archive believes in access to information and sharing resources in the spirit of public conversations. The Archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the Archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thanks to Maif Ma, Jonathan DeHaan, Aaron Kaplan, and Peter Bloom for speaking with us for this episode. Please visit our show notes to learn more about NYC Mesh, Funkfoya, and Rhizomatica. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. <laughs>